Hey, it's Karen Hunter from the Karen Hunter Show on Sirius XM Urban View. Here's a highlight from today's show. I'm very mindful that we are global citizens and there are things happening all over the world that we should know about. Um, and there are people all over the world and I feel like we're connected. Uh, there's a thread happening and what's happening here is happening in other places. And I think we don't talk enough about that because it will remind us that we're not alone in this fight for justice. So let me welcome one of those fighters out there. She's an assembly woman from the great state of New York in the 39th district. Let me welcome for the first time, representative Catalina Cruz. Welcome. Thank you, Karen. It's so good to be here. You know, the wonders of Twitter, you never know who you're going to meet and the kinds of connections you're going to make. Yeah, I'm always on Twitter. I'm looking for smart people to have conversations. Unlike, um, not unlike, let me not make a comparison. I really value talking to people about their experiences. And I think we don't do enough talking. We have opinions. We make snap just judgments. We see it play out all the time, whether it's a police officer in a uniform making a snap judgment about a 20-year-old or, or making a judgment about a George Floyd. And, and now we sit in these spaces of terror uh, having to navigate this, you know, when it's unnecessary, when we're all human beings, all having an experience, we all want similar things. We want, you know, joy, happiness. We want to go on vacation, make enough money to eat, live. It's not complicated. And yet here we are with this otherism. We have this situation going on at the border right now that we're not really talking about because it's under the Biden administration. And I guess we don't want to make him look bad. We have a mayoral election where we have a candidate talking about street vendors. And I'm like, wait what what is happening Andy Andrew Yang I I you know the Yang gang I get y'all but come on now there these are people yeah, ah. I, I think one of the the most insane things I see happen is um the this I almost idolizing of political characters where you're not allowed to actually say anything negative if you support them. You know, frankly, I supported uh, President Biden for his election, but if this thing at the border doesn't get resolved, I'm gonna be one of the first ones calling him out. You know, it's okay to disagree. It's okay to say to your elected, I have a different opinion. You're not doing the job I elected you to do, or I can't support you for whatever you're running because of X, Y, and Z and keep it moving and do it in a way that's civil. Tell me, tell me why you, um, you know, cause I know you're a lawyer. We were talking about people, um, you know, going into law for personal gain, but you decided to serve, right? So what, what, uh, what precipitated you running for assembly and then what's next? My, my little sister says I'm going to be a poor lawyer forever. <laughs> so I, I went into public service uh, because I grew up undocumented. I'm the first dreamer to ever get elected in the state of New York, only third in the country. I grew up no papers in a loving family. Uh, my mom actually sold them. My mom was an empanada lady. And, you know, she was highly educated back home. But here we had to do whatever to survive. And after seeing all of that and seeing the power that good law can have um, in our communities, I decided to throw my head in the ring and it felt like this was the one way in which I could recognize my privilege. I often talk about being a, a white passing Latina that's highly educated in these positions of power. How am I going to use that? And I felt like elected office in this particular time for my particular community was the way to go. And um, I ran an insurgent campaign. I ran against uh, the back then the one of the darlings of the party and I defeated her and I've been fighting every single day since for my neighbors. Being undocumented in this country, whew. Um, and, and let's go back. You're from uh, Colombia. 
from Colombia, yes. Which right now, talk about what's happening right now in Colombia and what we should be knowing uh, about what's going on in Colombia. Look, uh, you know, it's what isn't going on. Uh, right now we have, at least the, the city where I'm from, the state where I'm from is going through its first worst wave of COVID. You know, we are a country that is, um, is rich in resources, but very poor in infrastructure, very uh, uh, poor in money, you know? And so we, our government has been purchasing, uh, for example, vaccines from uh, places that no longer want them. You know, my grandfather uh, last week, and I'm praying to God that he's gonna be fine, was given the AstraZeneca uh, uh, vaccine, which in Europe has been proven to not be so great. And so, you know, we have a country that's really trying to help its citizens, but doesn't have the money to do it and isn't necessarily looking for a way to, to do it better. We also have a country that wants to turn a blind eye, and actually this is how our conversation began, Karen, um, to racism, the structural racism that exists in Colombia. Everyone wants to act like, oh no, you know, we are mestizos, we are people who are of mixed cultures, everything's fine. No, everything is not fine. The last time I went home, I witnessed more than once, you know, how indigenous people were mistreated in the street, how they were treated as if they were less than. Um, I had the opportunity to meet back then she was actually uh, the only Afro-Latina, Afro-Colombiana uh, member of the city council. Fantastic uh, woman who is no longer in office, but just, just a fantastic all over. And the kinds of issues that the community, the community really needs uh, the Colombian government to focus on, not necessarily focusing on that. We elected a president that a lot of people had a lot of hopes for um, and has been much more centrist and frankly, in some aspects, uh, right wing uh, than we needed him to be. Um, I um, having I still vote back back home because you actually can vote after you leave, but I let uh, my family dictate how my vote's going to go because frankly, I'm not gonna go back and live there. And so I want my vote to be able to help my family that still does. I have a huge family still in Colombia and um, and I'm hoping I can see them soon. You just, uh, you put so much into this and yes, our, our Twitter conversation was around, somebody tweeted out that there's no racism in Colombia. And it's like every place that's been colonized and has been indoctrinated with this European ideology of whiteness. And you even mentioned being, you know, a, a white facing or white passing Latina. You know, it's interesting that you recognize that because that privilege, a lot of people use it in, and they use it to oppress others, right? They use it to oppress others. And so a lot of times black folk, wherever we are in the world, we don't see Brazil, for example. When we see Brazil, they're, they're you know, parading out Tom, Tom Brady's wife as a Brazilian. But most Brazilians look like me. They have more African descendants in Brazil than any place outside of Nigeria, outside of Nigeria. So, so in Colombia, there are a lot of Africans there too. Why? Oh, there were plantations there. There were people brought there from Africa to, to, to work that land. And every place throughout Central South America and the Caribbean are black people who are being mistreated. And we need to start talking about it because the, you know, even in Dominican Republic, you know, they don't want to identify with being black but you are the other half of Haiti. It's the same people. Stop it. So <laughs> I remember that that was a firestorm back then when that whole conversation about 
um, Haiti and the Dominican Republic was going on. Like, I think one of the, the sad parts about the particular person who tweeted, there's no racism in Colombia is that she's a superstar. She is looked up to. She's one of the singers who's made it out and has uh, made Colombian reggaeton mainstream. And when you have that level of uh, reach, you need to be more careful with the language that you're using. And, uh, you know, in, in the middle of all the BLM protests, because we actually had our own version of, of, of the BLM protests in Colombia, and, and we, we even had a massacre of five young Black Colombian men who were shot at simply because they were Black, because they scared quote unquote, the people who were in front of them and they were shot at and murdered. And so she wants to, and her response to this is so ridiculous. She tweeted out a picture, I actually don't know if you know this, but back a year ago during the BLM protest, she tweeted out a picture of her dog who has black and white spots and said, beautiful picture where black and white can coexist, which is so ignorant to actually do. And the problem is that back home in, in Colombia and in, in, in our country, there is no real education around the history of our Afro roots. You know, it took a very long time for me to even understand that I myself have those roots. You can't see the picture of my mom here, but my mom, my mom in, in many circles will be considered Afro-Colombiana. And and it's actually a conversation my mom and I didn't have until recently, where she was like, wait a second, of course I consider myself a Black Colombian. You know, she's a lighter Black, Black Colombian, but she understands that she presents different into the world, and I understand that I present different. And so when you have these places of privilege, and you're using them to tweet stupidities, and actually <laughs> instead not try to change uh, the reality that people live, it's, it's just privilege. She's rich, she's powerful, and frankly, she doesn't seem to care. Catalina Cruz is here and you can follow her at Catalina Cruz NY for New York. What what precipitated you finding out about your own roots, but also that it was a thing because it's on purpose that Brazil and Colombia and all uh, throughout Central South America, they're not taught Afri the African um, roots foundation of, of how many of your nations became powerful and rich. Uh, what what was your entry point? Well, look, I think I always knew in, I have a very personal story um, that I often don't share. Uh, my, my dad's mother, may she rest in peace, wasn't necessarily keen with my father being with my mom. And I never really understood that it was because my mom had darker skin. And it's a story that I came to, to learn later, but I never really dug into it. And this summer, uh, as we were trying to I guess, form new bonds, even within our own families, because of everything that was happening. My mom and I talked a lot, generally through FaceTime. And she, and, and there was a point in one conversation that I must have said something that she like stopped me and said, she's like, no, 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 no. I'm a Black Colombian. I get it. I understand how I present to the world. I might not be as dark as some of my other uh, fellow Afro-Colombianas, but I understand how I present to the world and what I've had to fight with through. And, and it, you know, and it dawned on me, what must she have had to go through all those years 
um, to, to be where she was. My mom, before we left, uh, even worked in government. And that's a really tough job. You know, the statistics in Colombia are terrible for people of color, for, uh, for Afro-Colombianas, because there's, you know, there's a wider array in the whole conversation about BIPOC and why I hate that, that word. It's for another show. Um, I think it erases, it erases the reality that the, 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 the cultures actually are living through, you know, to understand what she must have gone through it, because she presents very different than I do. And it made me respect her even more because I already thought she was a fantastic woman and just strong. And now I knew she was even stronger than I even imagined. Catalina Cruz, the other thing, you're an American citizen. You came here undocumented. You were a dreamer. You got your citizenship, but you still call home Colombia, which I find not just interesting. I think it is, you know, that we can, two things can be true. You are, you know, you still vote in Colombia, even, you know, talk about that duality and knowing that that's home, but you're still here in your home as well. I have two homes. I am um, extremely lucky in that aspect. And uh, Colombia is the home that birthed me and the United States, New York, Corona, Jackson Heights is the home that brought me up, that raised me and that continues to sustain me and makes me want to fight every day for them. You know, when I look at uh, pictures of my family growing up, my roots, my grandfather, my father who, who passed away, all of those people, they're good, they're in Colombia. They're, he's buried in Colombia. And that's always going to be in my soul as home. Uh, but the home that I have as an adult and what I fight for is here in New York. I, I'm lucky enough to have that dual citizenship where I can have the power to vote there and to vote here. You know, a couple of years ago when we had our peace referendum, I, I, I fought a lot with myself on whether it made sense for me to vote since I didn't live in the country. And actually, I'm not going to say I voted every year in the Colombian election, but that was one year where I was like, I absolutely have to vote and have to make sure that I am supporting my family for what our future could look like. Mm. But for the people who say, oh, why, why come here? Go back to where you come. Because we hear that a lot. You know, this is yes. America. It's for <laughs> Americans as, as if every single person outside of the Native Americans, the, the people, the indigenous people came from someplace. Like everybody came from someplace. Some forced. Hi. Uh, others came through Ellis Island with the huddled masses. But what what do you feel when when people say you know go back to your country if you if you don't like it you know why are you trying to change what it means to be American you're not American what do you say to well them? actually Karen I have been told that um, in the form of death threats even when we were fighting for driver's licenses for undocumented New Yorkers and what I always say to people once because I'm petty um, I like to remind <laughs> them that Americas are actually a continent. This is the United States. And then I go on to remind them that whether it's them or their grandparents, somebody came from somewhere else. And unless they are full 100% Native Americans, they are not from the United States. Their roots can always stray somewhere else. And that I'm, I'm here. This is my country. And frankly, I don't care about their opinion. So what should we do with what's going on at the border right now? I mean, it looks ridiculous. I think they're trying to enlist uh, American citizens to dep deputize them to, to, to handle the large influx. And, and let me just be clear, people are coming here, not just for the opportunities, but because I believe America has destabilized so many nations and these are chickens coming home to roost. I don't want to say it, but I just said it. And that oh, no, many, I'm hearing, you're right. Okay. 
All right. Thank oh, no, you. no, no. That's actually, that's actually the speech I always give when people ask me about that. If you trace back 20, 30 years ago about how the United States loves meddling in foreign policy, the only people we can blame for these folks coming to our border saying help is us. We're the ones who went to Nicaragua. We're the ones who set up Plan Colombia. We're the ones who went to Venezuela. Like it is us. We cause this. So when I saw, maybe I think it was last week, the president uh, put forward an investment into restabilizing many of those countries. While I don't love the idea of once again meddling, if we're going to do it for the purpose of stabilizing their economies, their governments, so that instead of saying, don't come here, we're saying, let's make your home better. Great. I think that's one of the key ways to start. Um, the idea that anything that includes putting children in, um, in I, whether you call them group homes, whether you call them uh, as AOC did concentration camps, whether you call them uh, jails, whether you call them anything, the idea that these children are not with their families is heartbreaking. You know, as long as we're keeping them together and as long as we're giving them an opportunity that is actually guaranteed by international law, which is why don't we just get asylum or at least look at that possibility, we're on the right path. This isn't something that's going to be fixed overnight. And I get people's frustration when the president is like, look, we're no longer going to separate families, but we're going to go one step away from that and instead put them in, um, in these group homes or in these places where they're still quote unquote detained. I get people's frustration, but this is not going to be changed overnight. That's the way government works. If we don't see something in a couple of months or even by the end of the year, then we have a problem because you've had plenty of time to infuse money, get the experts and change how the system operates. We are not going to be able to blame this in the prior administration forever. Hey, this is Karen Hunter. You can listen to the Karen Hunter show live every Monday through Friday at 3 p.m. East on Sirius XM Urban View Channel 126 or anytime on the Sirius XM app.